This episode of Fresh Ed is sponsored by the Comparative and International Education Society. On October 26th and 27th, the Society's second symposium will take place at George Mason University, where the theme will be Interrogating and Innovating Comparative and International Education Research. Today's guest on Fresh Ed will be a speaker at the symposium. If you would like to join us just outside Washington, D.C. this fall, you can find more details at freshedpodcast.com backslash 2017 symposium. Again, that is freshedpodcast.com backslash 2017 symposium. Enjoy the podcast and hope to see you at the symposium in October. This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, we kick off a four-part series called Fresh Ed X Symposium. During the lead-up to the 2017 symposium, four speakers will join Fresh Ed to whet your appetite for the conversations and debate that will take place in Washington, D.C. later this month. This year's symposium asks us to consider how comparative and international education phenomena are studied and weighed through the possibility that our field has colonial legacies and tendencies. To kick things off, Lee Patel joins me to discuss the ways in which settler colonialism structures American society, including the academy. Settler colonialism is always working to justify through different narratives that it is normal or best for development or best for that nation that these outsiders came and settled the country. And the academy has definitely been impacted by it. Lee Patel is an interdisciplinary researcher, educator, and writer. She is a professor at the University of California, Riverside, and is working on her next book, To Study is to Struggle, Higher Education and Settler Colonialism. Lee Patel, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So you have written, um, well, a whole bunch of things, but one of the ideas that you have returned to often is something called settler colonialism. What is settler colonialism? Yeah, settler colonialism is a concept that was first introduced to me by uh, a scholar named Eve Tuck, who works at the University of Toronto, an indigenous woman. And I had been talking about decolonization and had been thinking about colonization. And Eve and I were at a conference, and I was presenting, and she asked folks there if they knew what a settler colony was. And nobody did. And the conference was happening in the United States, and she said, this is a settler colony. And so settler colonialism is is a form of colonialism in which instead of um, somebody who's in power sending, sending folks who are under their power to go and extract resources and bring them back, for example, spices or tea or sugar, which is often a form of colonialism, or oil, to extract goods and bring them back to this powerful nation or powerful country. Settler colonialism is different in which people go to another land in order to claim that land as their own and to settle there. And settler colonialism, Patrick Wolfe, um, and Wolfe is W-L-F-E, 
has written some of the most referred to works about this. And settler colonialism is more than a single event. So it's not just the arrival of new people. It's a structure that gets put in place. It's the material things that happen. And it's the logic that we think about it with. So settler colonialism is always working to justify through different narratives that it is normal or best for development or best for that nation that these outsiders came and settled the country. But that settlement also involves this uh, necessary and unseemly and violent task of removing any indigenous people who were there on that land because it, it just makes it harder to claim a land if people are already there. Um, so there's a constant remove, attempt to remove or erase indigenous people. And then a third component of this structure of settler colonialism, along with claiming the land and erasing indigeneity, is bringing in labor to work the land. And, and in settler colonialism, that laser, labor is often labeled as chattel labor. So the labor itself becomes property. So in the United States, when African peoples were seized as slaves and put on slave ships, at that exact moment, they became chattel property. Um, and they did labor for this settler capitalist uh, structure, but they also counted as capital and property. So in a settler colonial structure that, again, is ongoing and has these intertwined pieces, the interest is to turn land into property to be owned by a few. And then it has other locations for different people within that structure. A location for indigenous people is mostly to disappear because it just makes the it makes it harder to claim the land if there are living indigenous people, which there are. And then the locations of being criminalized or being just needing to be a worker underpaid that ultimately serves the interests of the few who hold the largest amount of property land interests. So this this particular logic or, or this I'm not sure if that's the, the the right way to to call it these structures these logics these these materials that are all wrapped up with settler colonialism would you say that they've impacted the academy Yeah I think that they have infused um just about everything um in the United States it's that is, that is the structure of the society that we live in, and and I think we'll, you know, it's a good, it's a good thing to think about. Like, is it material? Is it logic? Is it structure? I, th- I, I think it's a good idea to refer to it primarily as a structure that has material practices, but it also has logics. So the stories that we tell, the words that we use, justify those material actions. Um, and the academy has definitely been impacted by it because it's it's part of how the academy came to be it came to be in the structure so the academy as craig stephen wilder writes about in his book ebony and ivy you know many of the ivy league schools our most elite celebrated schools in this nation were literally built by the labor of enslaved black people literally um there was a, a large story in the in about georgetown university a couple years ago where georgetown university came to a place of reckoning with how it had saved itself from bankruptcy by selling a number of slaves that the university owned. Um, And so Georgetown University, being a Jesuit school, I think uh, quite in a quite representative and quite bittersweet way, 
enacted this this knot, this complicated knot. Here's this Jesuit, Catholic-driven, service for other people school that owned human beings. Um, and there were religious leaders who were trying to reconcile, how do I be a religious leader and profit from the labor and, and the selling of human beings? So that that is part of our DNA, and that's you know that's a private school example. There's also the example of land grant institutions in the United States. The land grants were given to federal universities in the 1800s, and they were created as places where people could go and learn about agriculture and technology. And the only people who were going to go and learn about agriculture and technology were land-owning white men. So. And that land that was um, set aside for these land-grant institutions, huge amounts of land, well, that was indigenous land that was then repurposed for land-grant institution purposes. So it's endemic to who we are. Materially, that's how our institutions have come to be. And then the logics also that we use in the academy, um, ideas like intellectual property and needing to gain access to research participants in order to publish about them. Uh, those, to me, not only have mirror settler colonialism, it's a way that settler colonialism is enacted through the academy. And it seems to me that, that capitalism would be deeply ingrained or intertwined with a lot of these structures. I mean, particularly with you know, the access in the IP law, the intellectual property rights regime, when it comes to academia, I mean, it is deeply connected to capitalism over, you know, who owns this property and how can it be sold and profited on? Absolutely. Absolutely. So the idea just even that knowledge can be property, right, is um, should raise a kind of a similar concern when we think about the planet. And you and I are speaking uh, at a time when the planet is reeling from multiple successive hurricanes, devastating earthquakes, and um, hopefully people are really concerned about the state of the planet. If we only think about the planet as resources, though, we don't think about it as a living being. And then we think less well about our relationship as other living beings in relationship to that living being. And so with knowledge, if we only think about knowledge as property, with intellectual property, and how people have access to or who owns an idea or who should be cited, then that really becomes susceptible, and it has been susceptible, to the power structures in society. So capitalism for sure, but even more so racist capitalism. So when ideas and knowledge are seen to be entities that are ownable and are pursued as ownable, that's going to become kind of a, a delivery system, another delivery system through which white supremacy and patriarchy show up in their power structures. So that tells us something, or at least should inspire us to ask some questions about why the percentages of full professors who are tenured in the academy is overwhelmingly white and male. Um, that's not disconnected from settler colonialism, which one of the things that it really needs is racist capitalism. And I would imagine it also 
goes with the the demographics of students enrolled in particular universities? Yeah, this this raises a super interesting question. So um, one of the things that I've tried to think and write about, and and many others have done so as well in really wonderful ways. I'm thinking of Sarah Ahmed right now. So we're at a place as a society where we know that it's a bad look um, to have an all-white leadership team or an uh, predominantly white institution. We know like, oh, that don't look so good because we are a diverse nation. So there is a, a desiring of diversity in many colleges and universities, but it can be very quota driven and it also can be very representational driven. So it's not so much to transform whose knowledge is really infused into the culture of the campus and changing who is publishing and what they are publishing about and what different ways of knowing and being in the world they're bringing into college campuses. But it, it, it hits a ceiling with uh, where how far representation can go and the quotas of just how much is enough. And we're at a real hot point about that right now on college campuses, one that in many ways is related to the uprisings in the 1960s, where college students are pushing back on diversity for only diversity's sake. Students often are demanding more faculty of color, in part because they want to see leaders who reflect their histories and their their experiences, but also because they want curriculum that doesn't start with uh, doesn't start with Sartre, doesn't start with conquest of the West. They want history that includes the history of their peoples and doesn't begin that history of their peoples with colonial encounters. What do you think about uh, some of the universities in America now where the students are demanding changes to the names of certain buildings because they reflect, you know, a, a, a white male who used to own slaves or, or, even, or even some of the statues that have been um, being torn down in the South that were of mm-hmm. Confederate heroes? I mean, what are you, what's your take on, on this sort of recent phenomenon? Yeah, um... I again think like what a what an amazing, exciting, and huge opportunity we have. Um, I think that there's a number of different things, and as educators, I feel a huge amount of responsibility this way. When we had the events that happened in Charleston over the summer, my initial reaction was, as educators, what have we taught about how these statues were built, when they were built, and why they are this size? And if we had taught that history with more precision, then I think more of us would be able to be in the conversation that these statues are about maintaining a fictive idea of the South that is purposefully disconnected from the maintenance of slavery and the the desire to not let go of that racist capitalist economic system. Um, but we haven't taught that. Like we don't, we didn't teach. Like these statues were built after the Civil War, well after. A lot of them cropped up in the 1930s when there was a great deal of lynching going on and during the Jim Crow era as well. And they were built during these periods of time because there was seen to be a threat towards that that base that the idea of the Confederacy and the idea of white supremacy had. That's when a lot of those statues were built and put up. So my first inclination is, Okay, the statue's coming down. I absolutely think that it's it's shameful for us as a society to to just say, yeah, there will just be 
some people in our society who have to make sense of themselves walking past these statues that are monuments really to the degradation of their ancestors and to who they are. Like that's unconscionable. The statues need to come down. The educators in me, in, in me wonders a couple different things. One, how can we teach about, I don't want to lose a chance also of teaching about how these statues even got to be. Because that helps us to unearth so much of the history of the nation that we don't teach directly in schools. We teach manifest destiny, but we don't teach it as a settler colonial project that relied on killing and erasing indigeneity and relied on a lot of enslaved black labor in order to conquer, I'm doing finger quotes in the air, conquer this savage land. And taking the statues down, we have an opportunity to teach about how those statues got up there. Another part of the educator in me wonders, so what would it be like if we decided to uh, create statues of black women who have been at the forefront of liberation in this country for decades? What would it be like if, if children grew up in small towns and cities walking past statues of Harriet Tubman and Ida B. Wells and Claudia Jones? And I think that, I think our society's not quite ready for that, but even proposing it as a question should help us to engage better with the people that we put up on pedestals says something about our values and says something about the narratives that we tell ourselves about our history. So I think there's just a huge amount of potential in the statues. They need to come down. And the potential is also in how do we tell the story of why they need to come down, how they came to be, and, and what is it that we value? What is it that we want to elevate and why? So you just said that you don't think America is ready for that yet. I mean, so what's holding, in a sense, America back? Why, like, why can't they take this as a teachable moment? And why can't schools incorporate the, the history of these statues and how they got to be? And why can't, you know, statues of the African-American women who were so important to America's history be erected? Like, what's, what are, what are the, the main things holding America back? I think the main thing that's holding America back is that white supremacy is just much bigger and deeper and more entwined in, in all of our structures than, than anybody would like it imagine, imagine it to be. So I think some people have really reckoned with that truth, but I don't think that's far and widespread. I think that even just over the past weekend, you and I are speaking after a weekend in which many of um, the national sports teams decided to sit out the national anthem or kneel. And um, in the in the wake of that, people are talking about that's a protest against the anthem and many people are correcting and saying Colin Kaepernick's kneeling was about the over-policing and the militarized policing and brutality in black communities. So I think just that, um, how much there's kind of a signal confusion about kneeling during the national anthem and what Kaepernick meant that to signal and was very clear about saying, that signal has gotten kind of confused and taken up in many different things, and this is an a, offense to the national anthem, when in fact it can be a calling to the national anthem. Like, let this national anthem actually serve its citizens, um, a challenge to the national anthem. But that that signal has gotten really confused and scrambled and taken up in a whole lot of different directions, to me that's a, a manifestation 
we're not at shared, wide-held, deep reckoning with how much white supremacy um, is infused in our thinking. That's why I think if I were to bring up to a city council, to the U.S. Senate, you know, the next time I walk up to the U.S. Senate, if I were to say, like, why don't we erect statues of black women? Because they literally have been at the forefront of every social movement. Young black women have been at the forefront of every social movement that has gained victories for civil rights, gained victories for people to be able to love each other uh, regardless of their sexual identification, that that has been at, with black women at the vanguard. Why don't we only erect statues for the next 50 years of black women? I just don't see it. I think because it's so radically different than who we have anointed as the founding fathers of the country. Like, that's the phrase we use still, as the founding fathers. We're also all white men. Right. So we're just, we're not quite there yet. And as an educator, I just, I also believe, like, there's a tremendous amount of potential in what we teach and how we teach and how we invite people into a difficult history. I think that too often we, we teach students' curriculum that is flat, and, and I just have a great deal more faith in humans' abilities to be invited into very difficult, complicated histories. Like, we can handle it. We can deal with it. And in fact, we'll deal with it much better when we have um, the multiple truths that we have to hold at the same time. You know, it, it reminds me of the Ken Burns and Lynn Novak um, documentary on Vietnam that's airing right now. And it, it is, you know, the, the simple narrative that was kind of given out to the masses is just so radically different than the complexity of the situation that, that Ken Burns and Lynn Novak, you know, present. And it, it really, you know, I just wonder, you know, are Americans trapped by like a very particular and simplistic historical memory? Yeah, I... I tend to think we do, and I, I hesitate a little bit in saying that to you because um, I also don't, I don't want to, I don't think it's, it's how we have to be, but I do think that that part of how the nation has been able to become an empire is, has been through the power of a simple narrative. It's much easier to rally behind a simple narrative. And it's much easier in some ways for certain purposes, but it also comes at a great cost. Um, so when we rally behind a simple narrative of what the Vietnam War was, which, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about Viet Nguyen's book, um, multiple books now, that tell the Vietnam War from the story of the Vietnamese. Um, when Americans have been raised with a very simple story of the Vietnam War, for example, or of Manifest Destiny or the founding of the nation, like I've just moved from Boston, and Boston is a beautiful city. It's a wonderful city. And Boston has the word first, like on a plaque every 15 feet in the city, like first this, first that, first library, first this. And I'm like, well, okay, but there were people here before that first library. Got, like, there was maybe another kind of library that was happening here. So there's very little recognition of the Wampanoag people when you're walking around the Freedom Trail in Boston. But when we tell a certain kind of simple narrative, there is a power in that. People can really rally behind it. But then we also see the downside of that simple narrative, which is then we have created a, an attenuated humanity that can handle 
this more sordid truth because we haven't we haven't insisted on that being part of what we have to know about where we come from. It seems to me the academy has to play a very large role to be able to you know make things more complex and and I you know I feel I guess I might feel a little discouraged having you know listen, or speaking with you and learning about how deeply ingrained the academy is is in this settler colonial logic and structure and and so I'm just, you know, to be honest, I don't really know, like, you know, I am a white man in the academy, and it's like, wh- how do I behave, and how do I, you know, what what is the appropriate way, and, you know, like, how do we actually start valuing alternative epistemologies and ontologies uh, when we're within this very structure that is racist and colonial? You know, I think a, a couple things are really important for us to do. One of the things that, that is important in how I think about this is I try to keep distinct um, the difference between the structure of higher ed and right now where it's at, where it's very much a focus on um, certif- certification and qualifications um, and achievement and property. And as, as somebody who's an educator has been for 20, over 25 years, just what learning is. Like my job is to really steward spaces where learning and where knowledge building can, can happen. And if I keep an eye on the fact that I need to try to the best of my ability to steward spaces where learning can take shape um, in multiple different ways and where knowledge building can happen, and that my purpose in doing that isn't for me to be able to publish about that knowledge, then I'm already doing, I'm moving away from this logic of property and this logic of research for the researcher's sake. Um, It puts me in a better position to be answerable, to support, to be in partnership with people being the experts of their own experiences. I think there's a tremendous amount that academics can do who have these skills of knowing how to ask these questions of how do we know what we know, um, who have access uh, to books and journals behind these paywalls. There's a tremendous, and, and who are teachers. Classrooms are catalytic, beautiful spaces. There's a tremendous amount that we can do, but it's going to require us to change the curriculum that we teach and you know, really interrupt this idea that all knowledge started in Europe and that's where thought comes from. We need to really change uh, just how we understand knowledge and ways of being with the world. And it exists. We, we have the power to do that. We have the power to take some of the skills that we learn in the academy and make that available as communities tell us that they need those skills. And then get out of the way for communities to to build the knowledge that they want to build about themselves. I keep thinking back of, you know, to do that, you'd have to also, as an academic, publish papers and, you know, try and get that tenure position, right? I mean, I mean it's, there's still that reality of, like, the precarious nature of a lot of the work that academics have right now. Yeah, and the academy, I think, is um, at a really interesting moment because you know the academy like like all like most other spaces in the United States has become so so infused with capitalism and so in need of bringing in money you know public institutions need grant monies to be brought in in ways that um, is different 
than it had been previously. So I and at the same time, we're talking uh, during a time when there are many young academics, younger academics than than me. I'll speak for myself, who do incredible public intellectual work that's fast and nimble and responsive. They do it on social media. They do it on online magazines and journals and blogs like. Um, I think you may be speaking to Vijay Prashad in the future. He wrote a quick, fast, brilliant essay about an article that was published in a journal called Third World Quarterly, and it is a fantastic piece of scholarship just about the history of this particular journal and how it took a turn and ended up publishing a piece that really is is quite colonial in nature as opposed to liberatory, which was really the founding of the journal. That essay that uh, Professor Prashad wrote came out three days, three or four days after that article had been published. So the Academy is going to have to figure out how to count, how to uh, assign importance to scholarship that has an impact that hasn't gone through these more traditional um, hierarchical structures of peer-reviewed processes. It's also going to have to figure that out because if it really wants to diversify the academy, it's kind of as a corollary to being sitting, having a jury of your peers. Well, in the academy, if you are a person who comes from a lineage that is not of that the typical college-going, upper-middle-class, upper-class family, and you bring in the knowledges of your people and your culture, and you write in the ways that does honor to those histories, well, how are your peers going to actually be able to read and understand and evaluate that? So the academy has to, is going to have to transform, um, or else it will keep self-reproducing. Well, Lee Patel, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. It really was a pleasure to talk and best of luck at the symposium. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to be uh, speaking with you and a pleasure to be on the podcast. I appreciate it. Lee Patel is a professor at the University of California, Riverside. She will speak at the CIS symposium later this month. Check out freshedpodcast.com slash 2017 symposium for more details. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes. It really does help. Fresh Ed is made possible through listener donations. Please consider becoming a member of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com slash support. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Yuval Devere, and Hong Zung. Aggie Hu is Fresh Ed's social media coordinator. An original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Priming. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll see you next week.